here at Fortune Kit Studios Labs headquarters uh, with Tom Bryhan, senior editor at Stereo Gum. And, you know, we just wanted to talk music for an hour. So, Tom, uh, what's been going on? Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. You know, uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just writing prolifically from isolation, basically. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what I've been doing. This This whole thing. The only real big change for me is I gotta like deal with my kids running in and like wanting to yell at each other while I'm trying to do it. Other than that, it's it's the same. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. I know. So for Stereo Gum, you do the series, the number ones, where you're just reviewing every Billboard number one in chronological order. Um, yeah, I've done uh, like... a little bit more than 500 of them now. I think. Oh my god, <laughs> so many to go to. <laughs> And they keep making them. That's the problem. They keep making hits. Yeah, yeah. It's been a lot of turnover lately. Like, has it's... doing the series changed your outlook on any certain era of the past? Or Yeah, it has. It really has. Because, you know, like, going into, like, the mid-60s, where things were just changing all the time, and it's just like, oh, like, the birds just showed up and everything's different now. And it, you, you sit there and you think, like, god damn, like, it must have been really, really exciting to be sitting there as like a teenager or like in college listening to the radio when this is happening. But then at the same time, I'm like, oh, but I actually know what that's like because I was, you know, in my early 20s and the early 2000s when yeah. like rap radio was incredible and, and just different shit was happening all the time. So it's a. Uh, I can't wait to get to that stuff. That's going to be fun as hell. Like 2004, I think, or maybe 03 is just like a crazy year. Like everything's good. Even like the shitty stuff is good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I'm like of the opinion that we have lived through some of the best times for the actual music being made, but some of the worst times for like the industry trying to fuck up, make things difficult for artists, even though the art is good. Well, I mean, that's been happening, you know, like the entire history of the music business is just like fuckery upon fuckery. Like it's, it's yeah. uh, it, it, like I, I was a music industry minor in college. That was a, a, a minor that they offered at Syracuse. And I was like, well, I, I guess I want to be a music critic, so I should learn about this. And the whole thing was like, well, here's how you draw up a contract to fuck somebody. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That's it's pretty much what it was. It was, it wasn't fun. I don't think I finished my minor. Was that influential on you as like an actual music listener <laughs> to be like, man, this shit sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it was just in terms of like thinking about it all. And like, I, I, it was like when Napster was happening and our professors were talking about how Napster was the end and all the kids were like, but I like Napster. Yeah. 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 I definitely I don't know. It, go ahead. Oh, just, I was going to say like my, uh, the way I consume music totally changed after I started making music my main job, you know, after I quit my day job. And, and How did it change it? The more, the more into the shit I got, the more I could identify. I mean, I always felt like I could kind of identify which bands were like a manufactured cultural product, you know? Mm -hmm. But I, th I think my radar got like uh, attenuated for those bands a little more and you know just hanging out with people at festivals or backstage or on like big tours with a bunch of bands on them you could you could definitely tell the bands who were being taken advantage of 
by their management or whoever was around them and didn't really realize it. You know, I didn't really have radar for that before either, but yeah. So would it like, that would change how you listen to their music? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think it colored how I, you know, uh, experienced some bands music, (laughs) I guess just like get being closer to them in the industry. So one of the recent number ones you did on stereo gum was men at work. Was that, is that the most recent one? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the last one that ran. I've, I've written a couple since then. And that was, I was surprised. We were all surprised by how popular that was. Men at Work, yeah. That album, I want to say it's like the number two biggest album of 1983, that's, I guess. That's so it's shocking. It's really than that. <laughs> that's that's in, amazing. It's yeah. insane. And it has, what, like it has three singles on it, right? It's got uh, Who Can It Be Now a land down under and then there's a ballad right like yeah yeah something else yeah i've yeah. never like, heard the third song wasn't a number one I, you've probably heard it but you just maybe didn't know it was meant for three years later they were gone they just they didn't exist anymore yeah it just seems like in retrospect it seems so obvious that they're like basically a novelty band but if you lived through that you'd be like damn they're so huge right now didn't they have a second album though? Didn't they? They put out like a... they, they put out three albums. The second one had like a couple like minor hits on it. Yeah, right, right. And then the third one was just nothing. It just was crickets for them. And I think they like the main guy like fired half the band in between two and three. I also didn't realize until I read that article that uh, that the singer is Scottish. Is that is that? Yeah, right? I didn't know that till I wrote it. I no concept. There must be a weird like. Scotland Ireland crossover because ACDC too. Yeah, right, right. Well, I guess uh, Australia was founded by Scottish and Irish criminals, so you know maybe that's the connection. <laughs> that makes sense. But yeah, so Land Down Under is basically uh, a Scottish guy doing cultural appropriation. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was so he was like fourteen when he moved to uh, to Australia. So I think it's kind of like ludicrous it's on the on the it's like ludicrous rapping about Atlanta when he's from suburban Chicago yeah and like moved there to go to college or whatever it's like Creedence Clearwater Revival Ooh yeah <laughs> being from LA and then rapping about uh, the bayou or not rapping singing <laughs> I wish they rapped about it <laughs> they should have they should have rapped yeah I would have uh, had a lot more respect for that yeah I don't know it's uh, the he lived there for a while at least like ludicrous did I don't think Credence ever lived on the bayou but like yeah it was totally like ludicrous a... rules you know like Credence is great mm-hmm. like yeah absolutely. They, it's they 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 did and minute works like all right you know they got a couple couple joints yeah I think the thing about like ludicrous and Credence and all that is they actually just understood that a lot of music storytelling is bullshit anyway mm-hmm. it's kind of like Bob Dylan too where he pretended like he's like so well-traveled and shit when he was like 20 and he had really just like come to New York straight from Minnesota. It's like you're allowed to get away with bullshitting your own narrative if the music's good. Well, bullshitting your own narrative is like one of the elements, right? Yeah. It's like you got you to gotta get good at that. You got to tell a story. I feel like it's harder to do now. People call you on that shit way sooner if, you're, yeah, if you true. just have a yeah. fake There needs to be uh, like a, a greater degree of like authenticity, I guess. Iggy Azalea but got nailed like, for that. It's like Rick Ross too, right? Like people want to believe. Like mm-hmm. Rick Ross is a prison guard and becomes a rapper, gets super famous rapping about being a drug dealer, 
And then it comes out like, hey, this guy was a prison guard. And then it doesn't affect his popularity one tiny little bit. It's just people were like, I like his raps about him being a big drug dealer. And it's fine. Being a prison guard is also immoral. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of overlap, too. That would have been a good pivot for him if he just started talking about that all the time. <laughs> actually, I'm I'm actually sad that he doesn't promote his Wingstop uh, franchises more often. Yeah, the idea of authenticity in music seems very antiquated at this point. You know, like, uh, like an I know that you know people love an origin story, but it doesn't necessarily have to be true anymore. I feel like maybe in the 90s there was, we've talked about this on, on the podcast before, but the idea of like somebody being a poser, that, that doesn't, that won't take your career down in, in 2020, you know? I don't think it matters at all. Yeah, me neither. The idea, the whole thing, like watching like Takashi 69 reemerge, apparently okay, like unscathed like people still want to listen to him yeah is incredible to me like it's 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 like baffling like i i wasn't ready for it i did not expect like i you know his whole career is like super unpredictable and weird and like bad but like him just popping up again like now and being like hey i'm back yeah here's a couple songs it's crazy like that everybody's okay with that or okay enough that it's happening and he's got hits now. It, it's 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 a it's it is a wild new twist. He got me too, and I guess that didn't really harm him at all. So why would this? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, he was like before he even got famous. He was like convicted for sexual assault on a minor or accessory to it or something. And then, but he also like snitched on his like former like associates. Yeah. Which is, that's supposed to be like a cardinal sin. Like, that's supposed to be like the thing you can't do in rap. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not a fucking expert on rap morality, but that seems like just, you know, everybody's going to say, no, no, you're not allowed to sit at this table anymore. And a bunch yeah, of like that, uh, said Snoop that. Dogg's Instagram post about how Martha Stewart uh, kept quiet and didn't snitch. And she's uh, like a, she held it down better than Takashi. That was amazing. <laughs> But it didn't matter because now he's like making fun of Snoop Dogg. And it's like, well, I I guess the rules just changed. It's like when um, when Soldier Boy was making fun of Ice-T for being old. Yeah, (laughs) I think um, with the Takashi thing, what's interesting to me in music writing, I think I see this especially from Pitchfork more than anywhere else. But like they don't know how to handle it and they'll do reviews to fucking handle it. I've written whole fucking columns about Takashi and then just been like. I don't. I don't want to publish that and just deleted them. Huh? It's really hard to stake out a claim on those guys because you don't want to be someone who is like, this guy is just obviously a clown. This is just garbage. This is noise. Kids are stupid for liking it because then you don't want to sound like the guys who were afraid of Elvis in the fifties or like were offended <laughs> by Prince or whatever. But then, at the same time he is a clown like what do you do well i keep i keep trying to find a way in not because i think he's like a redeemable person but just because like i'm like constitutionally drawn toward like new york rappers yelling like that's just a thing i've always liked (laughs) so like 
if I can, if I can like place him in a grand lineage with like Onyx or like DMX or whatever, or right. like MOP, it's not, that's not really happening though. That's not, that's not the tradition he's working in exactly, but it's like in there. I don't know. I, I just, I keep like the first time I saw like the gummo video, I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Like this, I, this is a thing I didn't see coming. And then it just, his whole career is just, calamity upon calamity and <laughs> he seems like he's probably like a really bad guy like he tried to have chief keith murdered you know like i'm glad that didn't happen but uh yeah i don't know i, I have no idea how to approach a figure like that and i i have not cracked the code on it yet he's got more energy than lil xan at the very least he might be the most transparently yeah. ridiculous or um superficially ridiculous but yeah as the music goes and the aesthetic and stuff uh it gets worse <laughs> like lil xan's name is xan but he stopped doing xan <laughs> dumbest possible name he stopped yeah. doing xan before he it. made music or maybe he tried to change it and then it, he went back i don't know he kind of went away i haven't heard I'm anything pretty about sure he still goes by it like his first song was about not doing xanax anymore and how it's bad to do Xanax. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he rocks. He's got to make a second song at some point. <laughs> he probably is one of the guys who's going to come to like embody this moment. Like one of the like not real successes that comes to embody how flash in the pan everything was at this time. I don't know if yeah, it's, no, it's it, like... is it different at all? Like you've looked at all these number ones going back to what the fifties and like there's plenty of stuff in there that's like ridiculous novelty music going back oh, to the yeah. 60s like it's, garage rock and all that stuff well there's yeah there's like there's like the battle of new orleans or like like there's this there's a song that's just a guy with like a really thick southern accent yelling about Mr. Custer, please don't make me fight those Indians. And then the like Indian <laughs> noises in the background. That was a number one song. Wow. Like, it's one of the Jesus. worst pieces of music I've ever heard in my life. Amazing. And, like, somebody thought that was funny in like 1962 or whatever. Um, Goddamn. Like Chuck Berry had a live song about his dick that's like not a good song. And that's his one number one. And it's from the 70s. <laughs> oh, yeah. My dingling. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was really weird. Like, what would be the equivalent of that now? Like an 80s rocker or a 70s rocker okay, making yeah, a... Well, it, no, it would be someone from right around 2000. Like if it would be like Ja Rule had a song about his dick. It was like a novelty <laughs> song. Oh, yeah, but it would, it would have to hit number one and kids would have to love it. It's It's not off the table, you know? Yeah, one of those guys could do it. Yeah. Buster Rhymes. Then, like the weird thing now is that like... It, the people have like figured out how to just break the metric and just push something to number one for a week, which they used to do, but they used to do it through like bribing the guy who worked at billboard from what I've been able to tell. Yeah. yeah it's like yeah. payola, right? Like, like, they, yeah. yeah. But now it's like, instead of that, it's like we released a shirt along with the song. And if you buy the shirt, it somehow counts toward our, Shirt placement. Yeah, that's yes. what I was gonna say. Is like I think it was like DJ Khaled who was getting really over the top with that, where he would sell like a twenty-four pack of energy drinks, and all twenty-four <laughs> counted as an album sale. Yeah, 
so and it's, funny. It's just like people are trying to like figure out the math of it now, and it, it, there's no way to do it because it doesn't make any sense. It basically shows how just, fundamentally arbitrary the chart is at the end of the day, you know? Oh, yeah, and it always has been. Yeah. But it's like, but yeah, so just like Travis Scott and Kid Cudi had a song that they debuted in uh, like a, 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 what do you call it, Fortnite like festival i don't quite understand how it works but like somehow they built up enough hype about around this one song to get it to number one for a week and then it disappeared and like probably nobody's ever going to think about this song again like it's kind of cool that kid cuddy has a number yeah, it's one it's literally just a moment yeah and like i i couldn't like that song was number one like a month ago i can't tell you how it goes like i couldn't <laughs> hum it for you but it's just it's uh it's it's the people are kind of gaming the algorithms or whatever. But that's what they've always done. It's just they've done it in different ways. Yeah, the and chart now is just really trying to have a viral through, tweet in a way. Yeah. yeah. So it's like uh, uh, the box by Roddy, Roddy Rich was number one for months, and it had that like noise yeah. that like. I guess people made TikTok videos of again, like I don't understand how it works, but that's like a pretty good song and you can have a pretty good idea that that song actually connected just based on how many people were choosing to listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good contrast. Yeah. Like you can, ha you can still have a number one hit that is a legitimate hit. And then you can also yeah. have a number one hit that is just like you game the system for one day and then it disappears. Yeah. Yeah. It, you like, you figured it out. Like you like, flip that switch but then you know if everybody's trying to do that and not everybody succeeds then the person who figured out how to game the system right you know who am i to say they don't deserve a number one song yeah for sure isn't that how old town road basically got to number one it, well, it, old town road was like as far as it seems like it was a pretty organic phenomenon because it like climbed like it didn't, oh, okay. it didn't like drop out of nowhere into the number one spot. Like right. it was it organic, was, but it was very calculated on his part. Like he, he definitely oh, yeah. did a lot to push it there. You know? Yeah. He knew what he knew what he was doing. He was like capitalizing on red dead too. Mm -hmm. Then he got Billy Ray Cyrus. And then every there. time it looked like the song was starting to dip, he put out another remix and that would keep it up there for another week or two. Amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just the gamesmanship was like, I think it's, honestly like a great song like i'm looking forward to writing about it whenever i do because i'm gonna give it a glowing review um but just like just him being like okay i can see all these like market inefficiencies or whatever or like this like uh just here's some way that i can like frame this that it's gonna get people interested and and all of it worked yeah he definitely understands like the waters he's swimming in and actually, you know, it's funny, speaking of uh, a major artist having their first number one hit decades after their peak, that song is uh, Trent Reznor's first number one. So Yeah, Billy Ray Cyrus is too. Yeah, it's no crazy. No shit. Yeah, Achy Breaky Heart was like a number three or four or something. Wow. Okay. Once you finish all the number ones, you could do the number twos, <laughs> the number threes. I've thought about this, like what I want to do with it. There's, there's a lot of songs that like just got up that high. Trent Reznor never came anywhere near it. I think he had like one in the top 20 at one point. But in the 90s, it gets really fucked up because they didn't count anything that wasn't released as a single. Oh, and really? Oh. A lot of really big songs were not released as singles. Yeah, because the 90s was the era of uh, record levels discovering the CD and just cramming 
you know, cramming as much music as they could fit on that format. Yeah, so 80 minutes it. onto a $25 CD. Fucking so much filler in the 90s from like, yeah, even the, even like, yeah, that Red Hot Chili Peppers record uh, that I can't remember the name, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, very long album, extremely yeah. long album, tons of rap records with a shitload of filler on them, you know? Yeah, the skits, the like, the, the 80 minute CDs. Yes. <laughs> and then there's like, like, there's all these records that like these big like love fool by the cardigans was not a commercially available single like don't speak by oh, no man. doubt was not a single that you could buy so they just wanted people to buy these cds and they did like it worked but then when like it, it, instead of like the 99 cent a single they'd buy the the 16 cd but then right. when napster came on everybody was like well thank god you don't have to do this shit anymore yeah, yeah exactly. the model was, was so absurd that it needed to be broken basically yeah i mean it probably would have happened did anyway. people really buy singles yeah i mean the single like i i'm 40 right i don't know how old y'all are but like 27 when i was like okay yeah yes, people bought the singles <laughs> i can promise you i bought like, a nirvana single in uh seattle on like a christian youth trip uh was it I, was it teen spirit no it was fuck it was i think it was brie uh it was either in bloom maybe it was one of the singles i've never mind but it had like a it had like a rare b-side on the other side that i uh desperately wanted <laughs> Okay. It was like yeah. D, like a wipers cover. I think it was like D seven or something, and I bought. Oh I, yeah. And uh, I was so fucking. I I bought that and I bought the Nirvana Jesus Lizard uh, split cause single, uh, which was pretty good. Pretty pretty good. Might be my favorite Nirvana. Oh yeah, that was uh, Oh the Guilt. Yeah, that's a great song. I don't know why that wasn't on the album. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But that, like, what an incredibly wasteful format. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I, I was going to say, I don't really remember my parents having singles. Because, like, I spent so many hours as a kid just, like, looking at my dad's record collection. And that's, uh, it infected my brain with all these, like, factoids about 70s bands and stuff. Yeah. But uh, I remember, like, CD collections of A and B sides. But I don't remember, yeah. like, CD singles. I know they existed, or singles. I know CD singles. I think CD singles were a bigger deal in, like, England. Like, you'd have to buy, like, imports of things. Yeah, if Japan, you were, like, too. Japan yeah, was, like, yeah. crazy In Japan, about it's because everything's so expensive that yeah. they feel like they have to give you a lot of tracks on there, you know? Like, they would always put extra bonus tracks on the Japanese version and whatever. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, the single was... I mean, you'd have to be, like, obsessed with a song to want to do that. But I remember I bought, like, Cantaloupe by Us Three, you know? Yeah. I think I bought, like, <laughs> All That She Wants by Ace of Bass. Because you'd just be like, I love this song, and I just want to, like, hear it over and over again. And it's here for a dollar, and it comes in, like, a little cardboard sleeve. And I don't care what the B-side is. I might listen do to you it once. Do you remember what the B-side to All That She Wants is? No, I don't. I don't either. It wasn't the sign, and I don't know a third song by them. Yeah. <laughs> they had some the Don't Turn Around. The Ace of like, Bass I, guy, I think it was the guy who produced that or wrote it or something, was, like, huge. He was, like, a transition to uh, early 90s pop. That was, like, how these, the Swedish way of creating dance hits 
infected America. Yeah, yeah. The guy, the guy, his name was Dennis Pop. The guy who produced, um, uh, you know, all those big Ace of Base songs. He was yeah. Max Martin's mentor. Yeah, yeah. And, right. uh, and he, like, founded this studio that all the big Swedish guys, like, worked at. And then he died of brain cancer in, like, the late 90s when, uh, when all that stuff was popping off. Holy shit. Like, oh, damn, he I got didn't know to that. Hear, he, like, he, like, co-produced Baby One More Time, maybe, and, like, got to hear it once and then died. Like, died before it hit number one. Yeah, I didn't realize that. Max Martin really carried on that lineage in, a, in more ways than I knew, I guess. Max Martin's yeah, output like, is weird. It's like sometimes he'll put out three great singles in a row, and sometimes he'll have like an eight-year period where he doesn't really do anything good. Yeah, it, and then but there's also this weird like uh, so like um, you know Max Martin was that guy Dennis Pop's like apprentice basically, and then Doctor Luke was Max Martin's apprentice, and then Benny Blanco was a uh, was was Doctor Luke's guy. It's like a it's like a like a weird like you know like ninja masters handing down the like secret of the five finger death palm technique or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. like Jedi. Even in like West Coast rap, I, I I was revisiting um that guy Ali who mixes all of Kendrick's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think I fully appreciated the extent to which Dr. Dre taught him all his tricks. He's such an incredible he's like one of the best mixers in the world. Like he's so like creative and I hadn't realized like the extent to which he's just the next Dr. Dre in a way. Like he's not a producer, but he makes the songs a thousand times better as a mixer. I have a lower opinion of Dr. Dre than I used to after hearing the original songs for like all the songs on the chronic, like, uh, fuck with Dre day is just the beat for that is almost entirely taken from, uh, Funkin for Jamaica. I think. And then um, Let Me Ride, like the hook from that is taken from something else. And I thought he came up with those. But like as a producer, his production's crazy, right? Like the hooks aren't necessarily on him. And the way he samples to me is not the best thing about him. It's like how his snare sounds and it's just how good the beat feels. Like yeah. he's like all that stuff impeccable is mixed, the details. mixed amazing. Like it always sounds good. It sounds so good. Yeah, it's like a it's like a like a Michael Jackson record or like a Def Leppard record. Like he just makes it sound big and expensive. Yeah, and, and like pulls all the elements together in a way that like it, it's like a where you're watching an, a big budget movie or something. Yeah, he's like one of the best in the world at a, a specific part of production. Yeah, exactly. And he would make all his guys like rap their verses over and over and over again. He'd be like, I didn't like the way you said this one word and be like super exacting about like capturing the sound he had in his head. Yeah. That's what even like his comeback album, like Compton is not even a very good album, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's I like, definitely like fooled myself into thinking that was like a great album when it came out. I tried to, but I was like, oh, it has like three good songs, but it just sounds good. I think Def Leppard's a good comparison because it's like Mutt Lang recording, you know, single notes of a guitar chord and then layering it all together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a genius. I don't know what happened to him, though. Mutt Lang? He married Shania Twain. Shania Twain. Yeah, yeah. I guess. I know he he produced a Nickelback album. He produced some, uh, some bad stuff, but he doesn't really he doesn't really interact with the material in the same way anymore. Like a lot of the Def Leppard stuff, you can hear 
like he was co-writing it and he uh he was doing the vocal harmonies and you can hear the same stuff in Shania Twain but he didn't uh, do much to Nickelback just sounded uh, like a Nickelback album have you considered maybe he didn't have to? Maybe the songs were just just so good. Maybe it was perfect, and you could change took it. Like the, took the fucking. Man, I wish I knew Albini this fact. approach, just hands off. That Nickelback record has like a pretty widescreen crunch to it. Like he made Nickelback sound as like big as Nickelback could sound. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I wish I knew this uh, last week when we talked to Joel about butt rock, because like he was just bringing up the point that like those kind of butt rock artists sounded a lot like country, really, when you break it down. Oh, and, like, yeah. the Shania Twain to Nickelback thing is a perfect illustration of that that I just wasn't aware of. Well, yeah, he went, what, like, ACDC to Def Leppard to Shania Twain to Nickelback. Like, yep. that's, he was, he was yeah. surfing on the zeitgeist for a long time there. Really just, it was like, oh, this is where the big guitar, like, crunch chords are going this year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fuck with this for a while. And now nobody needs big guitar crunch chords anymore. If anybody, if, like, uh... Lil Uzi Vert decides he wants to bring him back in. Maybe maybe Mutt Lang pops his head back up. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it would be funny to hear like trebly vocal harmonies, five part vocal harmonies on a Lil Uzi Vert record. I think that would be great. Yeah, I, I want to hear it. And just over compressed, like uh, just just room clearing guitar chords be amazing although you could easily dead end that too. Like when Lil Wayne did his rock album, and it was just a fucking disaster. <laughs> That I, I I I can't I still can't believe that exists. I think that prom queen on the album might be one of the actual worst songs of all time. I, like, I speaking of Nickelback, him. people give Nickelback shit, but that Lil Wayne album is truly much 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 worse. I'm totally unfamiliar with that record. I I did not know that happened. It's, it's I remember called hearing Rebirth. that when it came out. What, what's it called? When I, it's called Rebirth. When I I went I worked at Pitchfork when that album got announced and. It was like my second day on the job or something. And and like the headline of the article, because Drake was talking about Lil Wayne was making a rock album and Drake was not like, he didn't have like so far gone out or anything yet. And the headline was like, Lil Wayne is making a rock album, says some guy who was on Degrassi. And people <laughs> still like, people still like tweet that at me and stuff yeah that is a really good headline <laughs> they, they, they didn't let me get away with stuff like that anymore for very long at pitchfork it was a yeah <laughs> it, was, it was a brief tenure where i got to just kind of talk shit and then they were like no this is the new section like what are you doing that kind of transitions to something i wanted to bring up that like at the beginning of the year in my read anyway i think it's probably a blessing that stereo gum got to go back to being independent yeah, oh, Jesus like, Christ. It's, I fucking owe my existence to that. Dude, if you got sold to like a venture capital company, like that'd be fucking miserable, dude. Well, yeah. I mean, so Stereo Gum was owned by uh, Prometheus Global Media, I think is the most recent name of the company. But it's the same <laughs> company. <laughs> it, it changed that so sounds, many times. That uh, sounds good. That sounds like a good <laughs> company. <laughs> I think they, if, if I'm. Remembering this right, they also own A24 films. Oh, good. Um, but they so they owned Spin and Vibe as well as Stereo Gum. Right. And they had everybody like I, I work remotely. I'm in Virginia, but when I would go up to New York, they would have everybody all in this one like big ass office together, like a, like almost a literal content farm, just like tippity typing oh, away. Oh, like an open air office. Yeah, yeah. and like. 
a lot of the time, like we're blogging about the same stuff as spin is. So it's like two guys, 10 feet away from each other, writing basically identical posts. Um, it was weird, but so they sold spin and vibe off to venture capital companies and everybody got laid off like yeah. immediately. I think exactly. Go figure, uh, man. Like, yeah, it's always guessed? fucking what happens. Those kind of offices yeah, are yeah. such a bummer to me. Like when you see a picture of the BuzzFeed office or the vice office or whatever, and it's like two foot cubicles, basically, mm-hmm. you're just, it's like being in computer class in middle school. You're just, your elbows are bumping <laughs> against but it's, it's also like, why do you have an office in midtown Manhattan? Like, what is the purpose of that? Like, somebody's losing so much money on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's insane. Yeah, you're asking people to spend, like, an hour on the subway and spend $5,000 a month for a one-bedroom when you could just have them email it to you. I, w- I wonder yeah. if that's all going to disappear post-COVID, like, like, you know, this sort of idea of the open-plan vice office or these shared workspaces. I wonder if, wonder if everybody's just figured out these are completely unnecessary and, like, a waste of money, you know? I also think the same thing about like fucking booking agents too. Like if you live in LA and you work at Paradigm or whatever, William Morris, why do you need to spend three hours a day in traffic, you know, burning a bunch of gas to go to your office and sit there and answer fucking emails from bands being like, this guy didn't pay us. (laughs) I think with the media companies, it's a function of venture capital and people just eating through venture capital. Yeah, uh, that's what happened with the outline where they got a uh, office in Midtown Manhattan, I think, and then uh, they just blew through all the money and had to close down. And I think it, if probably after, I think it's I think it's like old habits too, right? Right. Yeah, it's like an old. Like when I so when I started, I was like I I started working at the Village Voice in two thousand five. And I loved going into that office. And it was, like, necessary to be in the office, even though I was just blogging for them. Like, right. like I Chuck Eddy was my boss, and he had these giant filing cabinets full of, like, press releases. Like, literal, like, physical filing cabinets. So if I wanted to go see a band or set up an interview or whatever, I would, like, go through the filing cabinets, find the, like, press release with the 8x10 that hopefully had a publicist's, like, contact info hope the info was still up to date and get in touch with them that way. Like I didn't know how to do that otherwise. And, and so like you needed the physical office with this filing cabinet to like get shit done then. And you don't need that anymore. Like it's all in my inbox. Yeah. When there's an actual profit motive, when it isn't a a venture capital bubble holding, uh, holding the industry up, I assume after the COVID thing and the economic downturn, that's going to kind of winnow away and you'll have businesses making decisions based on what's going to make money and help us not go out of business. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be across the board. Too, They'll move with, to Pittsburgh or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a mystery to me. Like, I don't know how any of this makes money for anybody, it's, but it's, you know, I've been doing it for 15 <laughs> years now. Yeah. I think one thing I want to point out, just I looked up the press release about when, Spin got sold to the uh, private equity firm and Stereo Gum got to be independent. And it's really funny that the private equity people who bought Spin put out this like boilerplate statement like, uh, we would like to delight our uh, readers, whatever. 
And the guy who founded Stereo Gum used the same word in a much better way of like, we would like to, we're going to uh, delight and infuriate our dedicated commentariat in equal measure. <laughs> and to me that like yeah. speaks to the difference in actually giving a shit about what you do <laughs> versus well, yeah, just I mean, buying yeah, that, something. Dude, it's like, if, if somebody involved has a personality, I think hopefully that shines through, you know, we're, I guess we're banking on it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. I think it does shine through. And it generally does. Like, you know, we, we talk about this on here all the time, but like it's so much more worth it to be independent and actually have a voice than just constantly play into just like SEO metrics and just do the most boring shit imaginable to get the most clicks possible. You know, like there's no point even doing that. Like we yeah. still do that though. You know, like we still, we still try to like put in a good like SEO headline and like, you know, if fucking like J Cole puts up a giant Twitter thread about like, Oh my God, like this is, I'm so upset about Twitter or whatever. Like it's like, okay, yep. That's it. Stop yeah. what so you're like doing. You have to- and, Accept a minimum amount of like chores in order to get clicks, I guess. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's like, definitely. Do you, do you consciously case. see it that way as being kind of a chore to do the shit you don't like in order to do the shit you actually do like? Hundred percent. It is funny it's, when it's someone also like, has a meltdown on Twitter. What's up? It's funny when someone has a meltdown. It, it, well, yeah, that's. A, I would want to read that too. Like when the J Cole shit was happening yesterday, I guess. Like I was interested. Oh, that's in true. That. Yeah, I did pay attention to that too. Actually, yeah, maybe I don't live up to my own uh, expectations of. Uh, I mean, well, but the the percentage of things like that I'm interested in is fairly low, though, right? Like, it would be funny to write about know. that and be like, J. Cole uh, goes in on unnamed woman, an anonymous <laughs> yeah. woman who he refers to only as no name. Yeah, <laughs> but I think he called her a young lady. Like, there's this young lady. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> it sounds like a school principal. Yeah. How old is he? Like early 30s? Like he's not that old. Which is probably most of his fan base. His cool school principals. Yeah, totally. <laughs> My friend who's a college professor was saying to me the other day that there's a great deal of like J. Cole, like uh, what do you call it? Scholarship in the like stoned undergraduate field. Like I think he's getting a lot of papers about J. Cole lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> J. Cole to me is the ultimate rapper that I'm just completely neutral on. No feelings either way. I liked it when he tried to dunk a basketball in the slam dunk contest. Oh, I didn't see that. He, somebody it was last year and it was in North Carolina and he had somebody from the Bobcats or whatever, like he he did the thing where like he was the prop and he like alley ooped him the ball. Oh wait, I did up. actually see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally forgot that. But then as soon as that was done, he like grabbed a ball and turned around and tried to dunk it and got like a couple inches away. Like he came really close. If he would have done it, it would have been amazing. But him even just like clanging the ball off the rim, like just being like, it's the fucking NBA slam dunk contest. I'm going to go dunk a ball. Like, I, <laughs> I, I really liked that. That's, that's, a, that's a, just yeah. a power move. Yeah, it speaks to something about his personality. I'm looking up J. Cole to see what his name is. What J Jermaine stands for. Cole. Yeah, it's just Jermaine, which sounds fine. Jermaine Cole. I, I expected it to be like jacking off or something. Or something embarrassing, <laughs> but it's just maybe he doesn't want to type as much. I'm looking at more of these number ones. I love this because it's like so many funny things that I remember. This like forgotten history, like how much 
Christopher Cross won at the Grammys that one year. <laughs> he cleaned up. They well, just like, bet the. Yeah, like, they bet everything on him. It, it, it's you know like Bruce Springsteen doesn't have any number one songs, but John Denver has five of them. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I wonder. Thinking of the Grammys, do you like? Is as like a metric for what's actually a big deal, which one is li- less accurate, the Grammys or Billboard number ones? I think the Grammys might be even less accurate. The Grammys is less accurate. Oh, for definitely. Sure. It's the Grammys. It's like a. It's like the Oscars. If the Oscar like so, the idea of the Oscars. It's it's you know whatever wins Best Picture that year is not the best movie. It's whatever the movie industry wants to put forward as like this is the best of us like. Here, world, this is what we got. Come take it. But like, so it's like the Oscars, the Grammys is like the Oscars. If the Oscars was awarded by nothing but fucking idiots, like the dumbest yeah. people. <laughs> it's like the dumb Oscars. So it's so even when something I like wins a Grammy, it's just like whatever thought process you you like went through to award this was stupid. Like, I don't know what it was exactly, but like. You you did some sort of like calculations and you were like, oh yeah, Billie Eilish. That's that that's our thing. That's that's what we want the world to think of when they think of the music business. We want them to think of Billie Eilish. And it's like yeah. um, and my I favorite. Like uh, my, sorry, my favorite Grammys is uh, like 2000 when the album of the year candidates were like Radiohead for Kid A. Eminem for Marshall Mathers LP, like Outkast had put out uh, Stankonia and all that, and then fucking Steely Dan won. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the, the <laughs> Grammy so people. fucking funny man. Amazing. All these classic albums just getting fucking thrown aside. It's sort of the yeah. same group at the Oscars and the Grammys. It's like white people over fifty who are mm-hmm. who live in mm-hmm. uh, in Hollywood in the hills or whatever, and they're just like totally removed from youth culture and sort of interpreting it through statistics or whatever but the grammys people are so much dumber sometimes they don't even try they just they just gave a grammy to the beatles oh just now (laughs) i think anytime paul mccartney (laughs) does something or anytime someone covers the beatles anything that's like uh if it's got a little bit of classic rock in there something that they recognize they'll give that the grammy maybe not like best album but they'll give it some of the other stuff even they gave uh, Modest Mouse best new artist after they made Float On <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> ten right. years into their career. That was a great bit. I hope they did that on purpose. Yeah. So fucking funny. It was amazing. Uh, even worse than the Grammys are the are the Junos though. The uh, Canadian direct video version of the Grammys just <laughs> absolutely fucking irrelevant. Like on every single been? level. Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you ever uh, go to it? I I went one. You have to. You have to. They will ask you if you accept uh, the nomination, and I think Wolfraid Wolfraid turned it down, but then Handsome Furs. We were like, yeah, fuck it. Why not? Like, it was for our second record, and we went, and I quickly realized, like, I was like, this is, this is fucking terrible. Like, we had to. We paid for everything. We paid for like overpriced hotels. You know. They were doing like, mm-hmm. like increased rates on hotels in Halifax. We flew to Halifax or St. John's, and then, uh, yeah, the whole thing was just it was a total fucking sham. Like, uh, the Canadian music industry is so small and so uh, insulated that if you're in any way kind of an outlier, like you're you're pretty much shut out. And I remember sitting 
watching the the awards getting handed out and we were my uh bandman and i were sitting at a table with all of the nominees for the indigenous category and they were joking around there basically like none of us really know each other <laughs> like so they sat like all of the indigenous nominees together and then stuck us there and on the other side of the room was like broken social scene the metric uh like basically everyone that lives in toronto and uh oh. made indie rock it was just, yeah, it was, it was awful. Uh, I think Justin Bieber was briefly at the, at like the awards oh, ceremony. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally irrelevant. Uh, would not do it again. What kind of feeling did you leave with? Like, per, were you like perplexed or just no? Just or like mad a, or what? I mean, we were on an American label. We were on Sub Pop, so like, uh, I felt like I'd been dropped into an alternate universe where. Uh, it was like a a sort of weak shadow of the American music industry that contained all of the bad things about it and none of the none of the uh, none of the high highs, you know. <laughs> so uh, you also have to uh, if you have a band and you want more than one Juno award, you have to pay for the extra ones, which I think is pretty fucking funny. <laughs> really? <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> oh, so like if the drummer wants one, he has to buy yeah. it. Yeah, you gotta buy. It. <laughs> you gotta buy it. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. How is that simultaneously like <laughs> propped up by government grants and stuff, but they're also yeah, so cheap? Oh, it's completely funded by tax dollars too. That's the other good part. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. Can Canadian artists get Grammys? Uh, yeah. yeah, Arcade Fire uh, got a Grammy. Yeah, it seems kind of pointless. They, then. Canadians win them all the time. Yeah. Canada's popping. It would yeah. be funny if they couldn't and they had to give him, uh, like, the best world album. I, th I think winning a Grammy actually disqualifies you from winning a Juno because it means that you're you're actually doing something relevant outside Ooh, of Canada. Oh, you betrayed your heritage, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they the Grammy should have made Arcade Fire pay for, like, 15 additional Grammys. <laughs> yeah, totally. When they won, uh, the English-language newspaper in Montreal, like, you'd think... You know, you think it would be like front page news, right? But they buried it in the entertainment section. It was like a, it was like a half column, basically like a local band wins big award. You know, <laughs> <laughs> didn't they win that award right after they had like BMX spikers on a half pipe behind them while they were performing? Yeah, I remember like, that. It they was tried like... to like come up with the most youth culture way to present an Arcade Fire performance, and it was yeah. like skateboarding. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. It's so awkward. Like clearly, it was something that was forced upon them. Whereas if they just did a normal fucking performance, like they always do, it would have been like way more engaging. They were one of the biggest skate punk bands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> suicidal tendencies, DRI, Arcade Fire. Uh, the Grammys should add a Grammy for like the Tony Hawk Award for skate punk excellence. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the winner is Goldfinger for the twentieth year in a row. <laughs> I wish there was a skate punk Grammys. I wish there was skate punk at his own award show. And it wasn't like the alternative press awards or whatever. You should reach out to Bam Margera. He would host it. He's not doing anything. It was really great when like the source awards existed and mattered. And it was like a big deal who won source awards. I wish every genre had that. Like if there yeah. was a, if there was a hardcore awards show and it was just in a, like a, 
hotel banquet room or like in a warehouse somewhere yeah i was gonna ask are there any i mean in like in canada uh, like as a reaction to the junos uh there's this awards thing called the polaris prize yeah yeah the polaris prize which is you know like clearly like way more relevant than whatever happens at the Junos. Not that it doesn't have its own set of problems, but in the States, are there are there any alternatives to the Grammys, or is it just basically that, and then Source Awards aren't, do they, they're not around anymore? No, right? they don't exist anymore. Yeah. There's like the American Music Awards, but that's literally just a People's Choice Awards type of deal. There's not like what you know, there's like the pitchfork year end list, you know? Right. The, yeah. There's that's no it. there's no trophy for that. Yeah, and there's like now there's like what, like two hundred bands on that or Yeah, no, I think they do two hundred singles and a hundred albums or something like that. <laughs> the best. Yeah, it's pretty uh but to the, I think actually that's maybe the best thing about Pitchfork is that despite like the ridiculousness of their prose and stuff. I think at the end of the day, they usually do a pretty good year end list. Uh, I wrote for Pitchfork for seven years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm you, guilty. Like, yeah. 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 I, I'm curious actually your thoughts on that of like, well, actually, I don't know if you would feel if you don't want to like, uh, uh, you know, throw shade or whatever, but I feel like their trajectory has been more and more like clearly aimed at getting clicks and stuff than it used to be. But maybe that's just the industry in general. Right. Well, I don't know. I don't like. I don't know what their internal stuff is. Like, I didn't stop working at Pitchfork as like a like. Oh, I can see the tides are shifting in this direction. It was just like, oh, these guys are going to pay me more. Right. Um. It, it's a. Uh, I I don't know what their strategy are like. I, there's still a lot of writers who I'm friends with and who I I like a lot who write for it. Yeah, their editor in chief is a friend of mine. Um. But you know. Um. It's it's hard. It's music is like Pitchfork's like tagline or whatever is like the most trusted name in music or something like that, and that just exists to be made fun of. Like, mm-hmm. there's no yeah. you can't, if you can't present yourself as an authority about everything now, you almost can't present yourself as an authority about anything. Yeah, like there's everything you try to talk about. There's going to be somebody who knows more about it than you do. And they're going to be online. Yeah. They have a voice. And, uh, yeah. So it's, it's, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to know where, um, where anything fits in anymore. It's, uh, like with what I do, I try to write as many like regular columns as possible. Cause I feel like I like the rhythm of it, but also it kind of, it, it builds up more of an audience rapport and something yeah, for totally. people to expect and they get used to your like voice as a writer. Yeah. Um, I think that's but, what stereo gum has is that like you have an engaged community who's always in the comments and stuff. Yeah. Whereas well, Pitchfork to tries to project this like, idea, but Pitchfork tries to project the idea that they don't by not allowing you to comment so that they're sort of like, this is authoritative because there's no conversation here. You know what I mean? That and the score, and the score is like a, a tricky thing too. Like I would get in like big fights about like, no, this is a seven point seven, not a seven point four. Like it, like any of that means anything, right? Um, it, it's a, it's, it's, it pitchfork kind of. I mean, it existed first, I think, to 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 sort of almost send up the idea of authority, like the rating system almost seemed like a joke at first. Yeah. And then as it became, you know, more and more widely read, I think it, it kind of like was like, Oh, okay. Okay. We're serious now. 
and uh, you know the and it's it's a it's been a, like a really gradual thing over the years and i still read a lot of stuff on pitchfork but i don't like it, if something gets best new music it doesn't change the way i think about it really at all yeah maybe it did at some point i don't i don't think it has the same cultural impact uh you know for like just passive music listeners anymore i i don't They're, know they had a niche that kind of dissipated at the end of the 2000s yeah. where like indie wasn't as big as it was back then and also a lot of a lot more people talking about music on the internet social media blew up um sort of micro genres splintering into you know like a million different factions and yeah it's almost yeah. impossible yeah. to keep up with as a i mean i imagine it's almost impossible to keep up with as a as, as a journalist you know the sort of yeah no i i have my like like i don't even like like indie rock that much you know it's not like I'm not, it's, it's weird that that became like the sort of basis for all like music that gets talked about on the internet. Like that's like, I, I like, you know, like I, I came in as like Pitchfork's rap guy who yeah. like wrote about rap stuff for them in like the whatever early two thousands. And then, um, but you know, I, I knew indie rock and I, I kind of, I guess came from that world or whatever. But like the idea that sort of indie rock is the basis for everything, it just it doesn't hold water anymore because it's the people who are into indie rock are people who are like my age and have professional jobs and like want to have the national on in the background while they're eating dinner or whatever. Like it's not it's not something to get passionate about. Yeah, it's like being into jazz in like the 1980s. Yes. Yeah. Basically. I think that's also basically why Pitchfork stopped being like a central authority on something because the thing that they were tastemakers at kind of dissipated. And then instead of finding a new niche, they just found the absolute mainstream of every story is just about Drake or Beyonce or whatever. Like they're not really tastemakers anymore because they just decided to become part of Condé Nast and be like the next Rolling Stone, I guess, you know? Yeah. They're sort of awkwardly morphing into just uh, a regular music blog yeah about pop music well i don't think it's a they decided thing i think it's the the reality has changed and you know the guy who started it sold it and i'm sure he caked the fuck up like yeah you know. yeah yeah that was the coltrane review guy yeah one yeah, of my right. favorite That's pieces right. of writing of yeah. all time yeah <laughs> shit cat yeah, I think I think Pitchfork right now reminds me of uh, like when I was a kid, I I would read Rolling Stone constantly, like in the '90s, just to, you know, because they were still covering. They'd have like a piece on like Royal Trucks or like, Mers mm -hmm. or Boredoms or something like that, or you know, occasionally would cover like Drive Like Jehu, and I would search for those those articles, and then like in the late '90s, early 2000s, if I was if I was ever looking at Rolling Stone, I just felt like it would tonally lost you know like they were covering pop music but all that other content was kind of had disappeared and uh there was no real center to it you know and i i, I feel like that that's because the world had kind of moved on past them at that point i don't know how soon it happened but eventually rolling stone just turned into like the top 50 Jimi hendrix songs yeah and yeah. there's just Spin Jimi the hendrix on the, the like spin did the same thing but with like kurt Cobain. That's right. 
<laughs> in the in the nineties or whatever. And like Pitchfork, to its credit, has not turned into the like here's the the you know twenty best panda bear songs. That would That's be a funny. good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. They did move. They moved on from that, but I don't think they found a niche. They just kind of do the mainstream now but i guess you're right that maybe that is a better alternative than becoming a relic yeah they actively moved away from that like they made a sort of concerted decision you know like four or five maybe four years ago i feel like editorially to try and distance themselves as much from the bands that they launched careers for in the mid 2000s well it's not the same people too yeah, oh yes yeah. yeah absolutely editorial yeah. turnover yeah. and the you know the editor in chief when I went to work there full time was like two editors in chief ago. Yeah, that's another weird thing about that because like, if something has an eight on Pitchfork, it has an eight on Pitchfork forever. Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> and it's someone who wrote there fifteen years ago, and hasn't mm-hmm. done it since. And it, there's mm-hmm. just total turnover of people, and sometimes reviews for like huge albums are just done by some freelancer. It's just someone with like a thousand it's, it's followers mostly freelancers. Yeah, so it's like that's who's giving the score to this album. That's just like goes in the archive. This is what this is how. But then there's always a lot of like internal good. conversation about like who gets this album and like it used to be this weird like 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 you'd almost have to like vie with other writers to be like no 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 I can write the I can write the best fucking like the little Wayne and Birdman album. Like I'm your guy for that one. Right. And I mean, they, they'll tr- put a certain amount of trust in certain writers or they'll be like, well, let's give this person a shot on this one. It's like a, it's a, it's a process. I don't know how much that process has changed since I was there, but it's, it's, uh, it's, I'm guessing it's pretty much the same. To be fair to those people, like as much as we make fun of bad music reviews, I think it would take me probably two reviews of brand new albums that I don't really care about before I would just get completely burned out on it and never want to do it again. Just I mean, that, that is a constant challenge is just yeah. being like, here's the interesting thing about this. Here's what I can say about it. And you don't want to shit on something out of hand, but you also don't want to like convey undue enthusiasm for something you're not enthusiastic about. Right. Right. Yeah. We, like, I, how do you I, write a 6.0 review? What do you say? That's almost why niche, like, it's important to have a niche because the people who understand that niche care about it. And even if it's not their favorite album, they know the scene so well or the genre so well that they can at least talk about something engaging, you know? Some kind of authority or... I mean, I've had the experience of uh, putting out a record with a band and having two or three, uh, you know, people who have freelanced for Pitchfork approach pitchfork about reviewing the album and then say and then turning these people down and giving the review to somebody who has been you know like not hostile but pretty like (laughs) pretty lukewarm on the band which is uh, which is kind of funny to me like i'm not sure how or why those decisions get made but uh yeah so wait did the writers who got turned down for it like tell you about that they did because I know them. Well, <laughs> then if you know them, they should be reviewing your band. Though. I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah. Dan, you unethical. 
cheater. That's like, you're trying to, that's a good point. You're trying to plant your people in there. Why did you pay those guys off to give you a good review? <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I, you know, I'm not paying anybody. Th- this is indie payola right here. Yeah. Wolf Parade, 10 out of 10, best new music. Every this time, makes pet every time I like say shit. something nice about goddamn Ariana Grande or something, there will be a million stereo gum comments like, how much did you get paid for this? And it's like, no, I, I, I like Ariana Grande songs. It's, it's, there's the idea of payola in the fucking like indie rock press is the dumbest shit. Yeah. <laughs> Ariana like, Grande would pay stereo gum for a good review. <laughs> exactly. She doesn't know she'll, what that yeah, is. No. She'll just like pull out a knot of cash and be like, how much? Yeah, it's a great website here. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. That was like an E1 bit where we were trying to get Michael Bloomberg to give us money, but it didn't work, you know? He was (laughs) was handing it out more than anybody, and we still didn't get anything. He cut it off real quick, though. He was like, I'm going to pay for everybody's health insurance forever. And then as soon as he stopped, it just all the money. Oh, yeah, he dropped them that month or whatever. And they deserved it. (laughs) Yeah, what a surprise that this billionaire piece of shit would not uh, follow through on his promises to give you a very small fraction of his fortune. Yeah, it's not unknown knowledge that he's a bad guy. Imagine deciding to work for Michael Bloomberg. Just being (laughs) like, like, that's like, you got to think that's why Stacey Abrams is not going to be Joe Biden's running mate, right? Oh, yeah. Well, also that she's just desperately been asking his people like every day, like, please, 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 can I be his running mate? But would that disqualify her if it wasn't for the Bloomberg thing? It's just like, it seems like the Bloomberg thing is just like, it, you can't know. Like, you endorse yeah. Michael Bloomberg, like the most obviously like despicable motherfucker. Yeah, it's a very low baseline, you know. It should yeah. kind of disqualify yeah. you. Yeah. People really misread that. They, um, people put a lot on the line to cape for Michael Bloomberg, and he just went nowhere. They thought, oh, he's going to be the nominee. He has the most money, and then nothing. Yeah, it was happened. ultra cynicism based on like Trump did it. So the next shitty guy who does it will also win. Yeah. It's like no, fuck you. No, Trump won because he had a TV show. He was the man on TV. If someone on TV runs maybe they have a chance but being a billionaire is not like that they already tried that steve forbes ran for president he went nowhere or like ross perot or whatever yeah you have to be on tv more but yeah um i don't know we covered a lot of ground i think tom thanks for being here it was a good conversation yeah yeah no doubt it's fun yeah Yeah. god bless